How about we pray and we launch into this? We're going to be in John chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, if you've got like a Bible and a book, crack that open. If it's on your phone, make sure that's open. If you've got your Elevate app, which I know you do, you guys are so great. You've got an Elevate app. How do you do that? Could, is it possible for me to get a New Spring app? I need to talk to Jamie. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray because I'm believing that God needs to speak to me personally and um, possibly some people here as well. I will listen to this podcast again because even though I'm up here speaking, I need to be down there listening, if you know what I'm saying. So, Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for another opportunity to open up Holy Scripture. We thank you that you brought us here and um, we know that you love us dearly. Father, we pray that we'd be radically changed and transformed in these next 27 or so minutes and that we would walk out of here just looking more like Jesus, talking more like Jesus, loving the world more like Jesus. And we would actually walk out of this place and we would be dangerous to the devil. And uh, we would just be mighty for your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I've been thinking this week that in this um, fast-paced world that we live, that um, says that we're so um, modern, we're so intellectual, we're so transient, that we've actually lost the art of a couple of things in our society. I was um, just in a cafe the other day and I saw this young guy and this beautiful um, girl and I assumed they were dating and, and they were sitting there, they were having a coffee and all that and, and um, they weren't looking at the, each other. They, maybe they were having a fight, I don't know. They weren't looking at each other, they were looking at their phones and I thought to myself, maybe we've lost the art of having a conversation. When's the last time you actually talked to someone? This morning, <laughs> you know, you may not believe it, but I'm old enough now. I had my 39th birthday this week. Did. 39th birthday. My daughter, who was five, has her birthday four days after mine. So my birthday was actually all about her. Um, crazy. But I do remember the time when we used to have um, phones and we actually used them to talk to people instead of like doing a hashtag and messaging and emojis and things like that. Sometimes we lose that, the art of having a conversation in um, the world. I think possibly even in the last week, Australia has, has possibly um, had a highlight that we've lost the art of actually having a good debate, you know, having a good debate. We, we need to relearn the art of actually having a debate, um, to actually put up ideas and to examine ideas and talk about ideas and, and actually interrogate ideas to see, is that actually a good idea or is that like a really dumb idea? You know what I'm saying? We need to do that. I heard someone a couple of years ago saying that if you lose the um, art of actually having a debate, all that's left is fighting. You just have a fight if you can't have a debate. Um, I think particularly in churches, we need to have debates and actually talk about things. Um, I've come from, well, I, I'm in a church, as this is a Church of Christ, and Church of Christ has a great history, but we've also got some vulnerabilities and that sometimes we don't like talking about things. But we actually need to actually learn the art, once again, of having a debate. Following the football this year, I've been excited by my West Coast Eagles. I've been really interested with um, the other Western Australian team, um, who shall not be named. <laughs> and um, well, what I was thinking about is, like, isn't it amazing that in this day and age that we've got all these sports scientists, we've got these physios, we've got these trainers, we've got so many coaches, we, we've got so many, so many things all around them. And we seem to, like so a, lot, a lot of these football teams, a lot of these players seem to have lost the art of being able to take a football and to kick a football in between the goals, <laughs> and that is your job. <laughs> Lost the art of that. Well, today I want to talk about something that we um, may well 
be vulnerable of losing the art of. Yet it is something as the body of Christ, as Christians, that we can never lose the art of. And it is the art of secrecy. I want to talk about the art of secrecy. And I've really been intrigued with your series, What Would Jesus Undo? Have you been enjoying that? If you've missed one of the weeks, go back and listen because you've got your podcast and I've actually been going back and I've actually been listening to Mark. So I know what you've been going through. Um, but just this idea of um, what would Jesus undo? What a great question. What would Jesus undo? Um, and as I, was, as I just saw that thing, I just had this beautiful, beautiful story come to my mind from John chapter 2. And um, it's one of these stories about what Jesus actually did undo. And it's informative for us to understand something about God, understand something about Jesus, but it's also instructional in that how many of you know that whatever Jesus does, whatever Jesus teaches is actually supposed to inform us as to how we're supposed to live in this world, right? In John 20, 21, Jesus with His disciples and He looks at His disciples and He says, As the Father has sent me, I am now sending you. You, blows on them the Holy Spirit and sends them on their way, that Jesus is actually living a life to actually inform us in the same way that the Father has sent Jesus into this world, Jesus now sends His church, which is really good for us to know as the church, because it means that the church is sent and the church is not stuck, doesn't it? It means that the church is moving forward, we're not moving backwards. It means that the church is actually always supposed to be on the cutting edge because we're sent by Jesus. Isn't that good to know? So we're going to talk about this art of secrecy. And this is a really interesting story. This is Jesus' first miracle. And um, the Gospel of John says this is Jesus' first sign. And you will notice that in this um, story, um, this is not a a story or a situation where Jesus is doing a healing or is casting out demons or is even restoring community because this is happening in the context of a wedding. But there is something that is happening which brings about this miracle that is so informative and it actually touches every single human's life. I wonder if you could pick it up, but if you can't, it's okay because uh, I'll let you know what it, because that would just be stupid, right? <laughs> I wonder if you could pick it up and never tell you. John chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. Are you there? Well, if not, it's up on the screen. From verse 1. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and His disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told Him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem. I don't know if he had some attitude or not. I don't know. But he's Jesus, okay? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had become filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Now, everyone's pretty familiar with that story, aren't we? I mean, you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to know that story, water into wine. I mean, how, how many would love Jesus to perform that miracle today? That'd be awesome, man, eh? water into wine. <laughs> After <laughs> it's a pretty familiar um, story. Um, what's really important is that um, 
gee, this is, a, this is a moment where Jesus does something. So seeing it so familiar, look at the very last verse. The very last verse says, This miraculous sign in Canaan and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed His glory. Really interesting word there that He revealed His glory. That basically means that up until this time in Jesus' life, this is the first moment where Jesus kind of uncloaks Himself and actually shows the world something of God. The very first time. Up until this time, he's just walking around, people are looking at him, people are scratching their head, people are doing a head tilt saying, this is a really unorthodox rabbi right now. And he's like, he's just doing some weird things. He's like just, he is not acting in a way that a, a, a leader in this current culture should act. And they don't know what's going on, but it comes to this point, he picks his disciples and moves over here, he comes to this wedding in Cana. And this is the very first time that scripture says that Jesus actually uncloaks and shows us something of God. Interesting. What I find interesting is the situation or the circumstance in which he decides to do it. We're at a wedding. At a wedding, you know. In the um, ancient um, Far East, weddings were really important. More important than probably now in that weddings are still important now, but it's about like, it's about the, let's face it, weddings about the bride. (laughs) I knew that. (laughs) I know. When I got married, Andrew, this is about you, I know. Uh, (laughs) I'm just tagging along. Um, but no, it's actually about a family coming. It's about the creation of a new family. But in this setting, it was so important for the surrounding community as well. So important. When the wedding came around, this was something of, um, that, that was so significant for a community because it was the groomsman's responsibility to put on this wedding, to actually do it. And um, what it meant is that if you had a great wedding, and a wedding didn't go just for a day or a couple of hours, it went for days. If you were able to pull off a great wedding, it meant that you would have honour on yourself as a groomsman, honour on your family, in the context of the surrounding community. And understand back in those days, you couldn't have a community, like it wasn't as easy just to like cut people off. You know, I'm just going to unfriend you on Facebook because I just don't like what you said to me um, behind behind your screen. No, Cana probably had about um, 24 to 36 people. It was really small. Um, but nearby Cana was this town of Nazareth, where Jesus came from, which probably had about 500. So if you've got such a small context, if you've ever been in a really small town, if you do a major stuff up, it's going to be really hard to um, separate yourself from that. And you'll know. So, so this is a big thing. What happens is that Jesus, for some reason decides to step into a situation that is pending, a circumstance that's about to happen, he decides to step into the gap between this groomsman and this freight train of oncoming shame that is about to fall on him like an avalanche. Now, uh, if you've been to Bible college like Mark, you'd be saying, Dave, this has so much theological depth and all that. I understand that. I've been to Bible college too. But sometimes we get so paralysed with the theology and stuff that we don't actually helicopter up to say, what is the surrounding situation happening here? And we need to understand the surrounding situation in order to understand why in the world would Jesus uncloak and reveal to us something about God? And it seems to me that He uncloaks, that He tells us something about the nature of God when we see this seemingly unknowing guy, this groomsman, the groomsman has no idea that the vines run out at this moment right? Has no idea. There is this avalanche, there's this freight train that's about to hit him face on and he's completely oblivious. And instead of letting that just happen and railroll him, Jesus says, I'm going to step into this situation right now. Incredible. I reckon Jesus is pretty cool. 
you know. And the thing which I find so applicable is that this idea of shame is something that shows no prejudice, doesn't it? Every single person sitting here, myself included, shame touches us, every single one of us. Interesting to know that the very first miracle, the Gospel of John doesn't use the word miracle, he uses the word sign. What's a sign? It points to something. So Jesus' very first sign, he's pointing to something, lets us know that God is in the business of undoing shame, undoing it. I wonder if you're sitting here and you've got a bit of shame. I do. Let's me know that even though I know there's some stuff in my life, God is in the business of undoing shame. Isn't that good to know? Anyone encouraged by that? Far out. You don't see, see, you don't see Jesus pointing his finger and saying shame on you. No, we do that, but not God. <laughs> Anthropologist Ruth Benedict made this distinction between a guilt culture and a shame culture. And she said, in a guilt culture, you know you're good or bad by what your conscience um, feels. But in a shame culture, you know you're good or bad by what your community says about you, by whether it honours you or excludes you. Now, I wonder what kind of culture we're in right now in Australia 2018. Right? What a great opportunity for the church to stand up and the culture may be heading in this direction, but we actually know, wait a minute, at the very first instance, the very first sign, the very first miracle of Jesus, He steps into a situation and if Jesus says, as the Father sends me, I'm sending you, well then maybe we can actually go in a different way, in a different current and when people are, are experiencing and about to have failed, uh, shame just fall on them, we can actually stand in the gap and say, no, I'm going to do as Jesus did and I'm going to actually reverse this. This is very informative for us, this miracle. Very informative. So this is threat um, of immediate shame and um, falling on this groomsman, which is not the best way to start a marriage. A year before this event, what would have happened is that um, these guys would have been betrothed, okay? Engaged. You're going to get married. And for a whole year, this wife wouldn't see this man. Oh, this bride, future bride wouldn't see this man. And you may be wondering, what was he doing for an entire year? Well, for an entire year, he would go away and he is preparing for his wife. He goes away, he's building a house. He's going away, he's, he's making sure he can sustain a family. He's going, he's very different to this culture because we just give ourselves away to any Tom, Dick and Harry. Back in the day, you, need to, you needed to earn your wife. You know what I'm saying? Ladies? Don't go giving yourself away to anyone. You make that boy earn it. Yeah. Yeah, work for it. You want to be married? You got a job? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so this is what happens. And, and, and all of this in the year is happening. And this culminates with this um, wedding celebration. And the wedding celebration, this is actually the exclamation mark of actually saying, I now qualify to be a husband. That's what it's supposed to do. Okay, it's actually there's something about this this moment where it says, "No, I am. In, I've done the work. I'm in the right place. I can do it. I now qualify to take you as my bride." And as this celebration's happening, the groomsmen obviously didn't plan too well. And bang, that's not a great way to start a marriage, a life together. When the whole purpose of the celebration was to actually say, "I now qualify." Not a great way to start. Not a great way to start at all. So we read this, that in this now open, this public community forum in Cana, shame is racing towards this groomsman. And this is a really bad predicament, um, especially if 
this is supposed to like prove something and right now you're going to be like shown to be like a fake. It's a major catastrophe and what we find is that Mary runs to Jesus. Verse 3, the wine ran, supply ran out during the festivity so Jesus told, uh, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Jesus' response was, dear woman, it's not my problem. It's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love Jesus because Jesus has this ability to actually not get lost in what the ultimate purpose is. He's right, it's not his time. His time's coming in the cross, you know, he knows. But Jesus has this ability to actually hold this tension between what is ultimate and what is immediate. And sometimes we struggle with that because we delve into what's immediate and we forget about what's ultimate. And sometimes we hold on to what's ultimate and we couldn't give a stuff about what's immediate. Yeah, if Jesus' life is instructional for us, there has to be something of, of us as the body of Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, that we can, yeah, we know how this story is going to end because we have read the end of the book. Praise God. Awesome. Fantastic. But in the same time, I understand, I recognise that there is so much immediate need that I'm not one to just walk past it. I am one where I will actually hold the ultimate at the same time delving into the immediate, even if it is a groomsman who should have known better. He had a whole year to plan this thing. You think, far out, you've had a whole year, 365 days. Surely, surely you could have ordered enough wine. <laughs> Unbelievable. Who was this guy? What I want us to actually look at is verse 9 because the way in which Jesus does this miracle, this is the absolute game changer for us. And this is what we are losing in this world. And this is even something by observation only, I think even the church is vulnerable of losing this. Verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew. He called the bridegroom over. You know, if this whole thing that Jesus stepped into was just about making more wine, that verse wouldn't have been there. This whole miracle is not about wine. Because it makes no sense that that verse is there. It says that, not knowing where it had come from. He didn't know where it came from. The only ones who knew where it came from were the servants. Do you think the servants told him where it came from? No. No. No, no, no. In order for this miracle, which was not actually about wine, to come about, secrecy was imperative. Secrecy. It was imperative to avoid bringing dishonour onto this family. And doing things in secret seems to be a lost art in this world, even amongst churches. Mate, when we do something good, my, my first temptation is to chuck it on. I want to, I want to tell the world. It's like, wait a minute, you need a why? We display, we post, we market our achievements to the world. Yet Jesus' very first miracle was done in secret because he was addressing a very real transcendent issue that was at stake at this wedding, putting a halt to shame. You may well ask the question, well, what would Jesus undo? Don't need to guess. His very first miracle, he undoes shame. 
And throughout the Bible, shame is this constant theme. Jesus uh, meets this woman at a well in, in Samaria and, and her, her, her life is an absolute train wreck. And the reason we know her life is a train wreck before she even says something about her life is that she's going out and she's getting water in at noon, at 12 o'clock when the sun is the hottest. Everyone else, every other woman's out there in the morning getting water and she's out there. Why? Because she's embarrassed, because she has shame. King David, instead of going out to war, he stays back and instead of going and fighting the baddies, he goes and sleeps with another man's wife. And then after that, obviously, he tries to cover it up with a lot of stuff, doesn't he? He, you know, we, we say David's a man after God's own heart, but man, goodness, he stuffed up royally, didn't he? He really stuffed up. You know, out of fear of exposure, he tries to hide his wickedness and leads him down this rabbit hole. We just got things that just do that. Adam and Eve, they, they sin in the garden that's in Eden and all of a sudden they have this vulnerability, they have this guilt, they have this shame. For the very first time, instead of running into the presence of God, they're running away from the presence. For the very first time, how would that have felt? That your natural inclination is just to be in the presence of God and for the very first time, you're hiding from the presence of God. Wow, wow. See, shame is this insidious thing. Shame is this thing that we try to cover, that we try to hide. But, but shame is this thing that it shouts at us, it accuses us, it, it terrorises us, it, it demands that we hide. It, 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 it means that sometimes we lash out in order to protect ourselves. We, we deceive others, we deceive ourselves, and we build this prison that paralyzes us. Yet the very first miracle that Jesus does in revealing His glory in showing us something of the divine nature, of showing us something of our God, is that he comes and he puts a stop to shame. Wow. Now that would have been cool if Jesus just did that. But Jesus is really cool. Because what he does then, he goes, he goes beyond that. This is how good Jesus is. He goes beyond that. So, so, so Jesus, he goes so much further than just like, like stopping this train of shame or even providing more wine, he turns this embarrassment into blessing. There's this pending embarrassment in the context of community and he goes out, he throws up in the air, reverses it, it lands down and instead of being embarrassed, blessing comes and honour comes. Um, from verse 9 to 10, you see this, this chief steward or this master of ceremonies make this pronouncement of um, this groom. From verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants do, he called the bridegroom over. And listen to what he says. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you've kept the best until now. Instead of having to endure shame, he honours this guy. Isn't that nuts? Unbelievable. I mean, what would you have? And not just honour him. He says, you have gone over the top with your hospitality. Right. This guy, he, 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 was, he didn't order enough wine. And instead of like getting ridiculed for that, the master of ceremonies said, you are, I have never seen this before. This is extravagant. This is so generous. I can't believe like, that you've just gone, oh, this is way over the top. Man, people are going to be talking about this, not just in Nazareth. They're going to be talking about this all over the place of this guy. Man, you, you know what? This was all about you proving yourself and qualifying yourself. Let me tell you, you have got like an A plus, 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 plus. You have exceeded anything I've ever seen before. And Jesus over there, he's watching all this happen. And guess what? He has no problem with it at all. No problem with that at all. Now, if you want to start going to some theology, let's start talking about 
what God gives us that we don't deserve, and he has no problem in us getting honour. He seems to have no problem. In fact, he seems to take delight in it, doesn't he? That's why we call it good news. It's not just good news. I think good news is just like, good's not a big enough word for, it's not, it's not big enough. This is extraordinary news. This is phenomenal news. This is the first sign. Jesus is pointing to something and he's pointing to something that touches every heart of every human, of every person who follows Jesus. That Jesus will take something that is subordinary and turn it into something that's so extravagant. He will actually take your life, he will take my life and there is impending shame and there is embarrassment and there's condemnation and he will actually bring honour and he will bring grace and he will just bestow on us things that we do not deserve and he sits back and he takes the light, he has no problem. Because if I was over there, if I was Jesus, I'd be saying to the master of ceremonies, you know what, this boy is never going to learn anything if you're just going to keep on doing that. You know what? There's no point to keep on covering their backside. They're never going to learn. Is anyone else like that? Or are we all a bunch of liars in church this morning? All right, preacher's the only one who's actually honest. <laughs> anyone else like that? That's exactly what I'm like, you know? I, I, look at, I look at people and they get stuff and I know that, I know you do not deserve that. Like you, I'm like, you fluked that one. My goodness. And I sit there and I judge and I'm and Jesus is like, yeah. Because that's my kingdom. That's who God is. You see how beautiful the story is? What would Jesus undo? Don't need to guess. First miracle, he lets us in. I wonder if you've done some things in your life. And you've built up this prison that paralyzes you. Maybe even now, you can probably identify with some things because you've been told by some other people and you know and even of yourself, you do lash out. And the reason why you lash out is because you're trying to cover up. And yet the very first miracle that God would actually do and show us who he is, his nature, reveal to us, he actually deals with this. And he says, you don't need to hide. You can come to me and I'll deal with that. And I won't just deal with that. I'm going to change and I'm going to turn your embarrassment into honour. I'll change that into blessing. Now, don't tell me that if we take that message into the world, that ears do not want to hear that. If we as a church took the good news into the world, please do not tell me the world does not want to hear that. Because it is so beautiful. It is so marvellous. But it's so challenging for us as a church. So challenging. At no point does Jesus say, shame on you. But the miracle is done in secret. And this sign does bring unearned honour to this man. I think it's funny that there are some key players. There's Mary who identifies the problem. There's Jesus. Jesus does the miracle. Only Jesus can do the miracle. But there are these servants and how beautiful that verse 9 says, but of course the servants knew. Who is the church? We ain't Jesus. You look at me, I'm definitely not Jesus. You know, I have no idea why I'm even up here with a mic half the time. But we are the servants. And that's the application for us. And that's why the art of secrecy is something that we as a church can never forget. We can never unlearn.
Because in any given time, any given place, we will come and we will encounter someone. And they may not even know it. They may be completely oblivious. But there is a freight train of shame that is about to come and just take them out. And our job in that situation, yep, I understand there's something ultimate, but I can also hold the immediate as well. And our job is to stand in the gap, to stand in the middle, and to be that conduit for the work of Jesus Christ that will actually take this pending embarrassment and transform it and change it into blessing. That will take this pending dishonour and by the hands of Jesus Christ, somehow it turns into honour. We're the servants in this. That's our job. That's our responsibility. And that is why we as a church cannot ever forget or neglect the art of secrecy because we know exactly what Jesus wants to undo. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you in that beautiful name of Jesus. We thank you for your scripture. We thank you for how you just are so masterful in outlining it. I pray for hearts today and they've been lost in a lie of shame. When the very truth is that you've come to deal with shame and to transform shame and you bestow your love, you bestow your honour on us, Lord. I pray we walk out of this place differently. I ask that as we've tried to articulate your word, that Holy Spirit, that you would allow things to resonate in our heart and to stick. And as we walk through this week, that we would see opportunities where we can do this kingdom act, partnering with Jesus, being servants of our Jesus, being the church of Jesus Christ in this world today. Amen.